So this evening I'd like to talk about the Buddha's teachings on the Four Noble Truths. In a lot of ways, the teachings on the Four Noble Truths address this question that kind of emerges quite often early on in a retreat, Uh, certainly arises pretty regularly for people who are new to the practice, but um, can even arise for uh, people who have been practicing for some years, which is the question of, what am I doing here? And uh, how come I'm putting myself through this? Uh, When all of us know um, by now that there are many other scenarios uh, that we've played out in our mind about what we could be doing uh, and lots of other choices. Uh, A teacher of mine used to give a talk early on the retreat and describe the retreat as a vacation. We used to sit there and kind of scratch our heads. I think, really, doesn't feel much like a vacation. feels like it's really hard work. But what he was pointing to, of course, was trying to cultivate a different kind of attitude towards what, what, what we were experiencing, to see if it's possible to nurture a greater ease or more compassion, a little bit more wisdom towards what's arising and realizing that on that level, um, the vacation is this deep, profound relaxation that can come out of practice. The relaxation that comes out of understanding and wisdom and clear seeing. Relaxation that is endlessly reliable and useful. Our normal vacations are very, very impermanent work with a lot of people in the city. Surprising. Some people get one or two weeks vacation a year. That's challenging. But it certainly points to the fact that um, as much as we need our vacations, they really can't be a reliable refuge. They're not always so useful in our everyday life in terms of dealing with all the conditions that we face from moment to moment, from day to day. And very much... That's what we're talking about in this particular practice. What we're talking about in this practice, the theme of this retreat is that your life is your practice. And as practice develops and matures, that becomes clearer and clearer. After a while, there's no real question in one's mind uh, about whether a life is your practice. Uh, we see, as practice develops, that whatever situation we're in, practice can be extremely useful and helpful. Clear seeing, wisdom, compassion, loving kindness, patience, equanimity, joy, inner peace. Qualities that come out of this particular practice. Endlessly deep, endlessly useful, endlessly liberating. But it's important to recognize that we are asking a lot of ourselves. No doubt about it. We're asking an awful lot of ourselves because what we're undergoing, at least in insight meditation, is an investigative journey. And from what I can see through my years of practice, that it's, it's a lifelong investigation. It's a journey that doesn't end. In this investigative journey, 
the Buddha described as the path of awakening. Path of awakening from the dream. Awakening from the contraction of suffering. Awakening to freedom, liberation, unconditional peace. So often, particularly early on in a retreat, we emphasize patience. And the reason we're emphasizing that is, one, is it's such a valuable quality to have. You know, it's, such a, it's a hard-earned quality. You know, in this particular culture that we live in, uh, we're, we're all deeply conditioned to be impatient. Deeply conditioned to be impatient. We want things to happen quickly. Uh, we compare, we evaluate, we analyze, we problem-solve. Very high expectations of ourselves, quite often. And the price in that is kind of a loss of patience, kind of an inability in some ways to just be with oneself because there are so many ways that we can get away from ourselves. And so what we're doing on retreat here is being with ourselves. That's why it's such a big job. Big job being with yourself. Nobody, as far as I can tell, um, is overtly tormenting you. People, everybody in this room and everybody on staff, uh, their intentions are really genuine to support each other um, and to support each other's practice. And what we can see is that the mind can torment us. It's our minds that are tormenting us. Because here we place ourselves in a set of conditions. So often the mind keeps looking outside and blaming the conditions. And you can certainly do that here at IMS. You can blame the schedule, Uh, you can blame the teachers, you can blame the staff, you can blame the food, you can blame the temperature, hot or cold. The mind is constantly looking at the conditions as a source of the suffering. But what we're doing here is somewhat different. What we're asking ourselves to do is something different, which is to begin to look and take a look at oneself. To take a look at how we are relating to the conditions that we encounter. It's a very different orientation. It's a very different attitude. It's taking responsibility for one's heart and for one's mind. In many, many ways, practice isn't so much about becoming an expert in life, a know-it-all, Nobody likes a know-it-all anyway. It's not about being a know-it-all. It's a, it's a deepening in the mind, a deepening in the heart, where, which enables us to make discoveries. It's very difficult to make a new discovery. You know, we carry around so many ideas, so many preconceptions about who we are and what's possible, and they've been drummed into our heads from very early on. So to discover something new, particularly to to begin to discover the nature of our suffering and liberation, takes a real commitment, a real perseverance.
it requires us to really begin to let go of these preconceptions, these judgments we have about ourselves, judgments about our experience, all these judgments about how we should be or shouldn't be. And all of those become obstacles. They get in the way of this open-hearted investigation. And that's the path. The path is essentially an open-hearted investigation into our lives, into the world that we're living in. And we can see, as Narayan spoke about last night, how important the attitude is in this investigative process. This attitude of trying to cultivate greater acceptance, being more allowing, because that paves the way for this investigative process. Very difficult to investigate, and I think we can see this even in just kind of fundamental problem solving. If we have a preconception about the way it should be, closes down that process of discovery. New insights, really, there's not enough room for new insights. Very difficult to look at a situation or a problem, look at ourselves in a fresh way, if we have all sorts of ideas, all sorts of views and opinions about what our experience is about. So the practice is asking us to begin to let that go. And that, of course, doesn't happen overnight. We have to continually encounter these ideas as we go along. So what the Buddha did was pretty much exactly what we're doing. He was maybe just a little further along the way process. Let's just say that. I'd say quite a bit further along the way. Uh, But after many, many years of training, really focusing on developing samadhi, which is what his teachers knew, he experienced extremely high, elevated states of samadhi. States of samadhi that all of us, if we experienced them, we'd be clinging to them like crazy. Uh, We wouldn't want to come back. When I read about the descriptions, I say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good. No pain, no body, bliss, joy, nothing really touching you, light, lots of lovely beings, nobody hassling you, no traffic jams, just bliss. But that wasn't enough for him. And that's the, that's the twist. That wasn't enough for him. Because even in those particular states of mind, he recognized that there was still the presence of suffering, still the presence of grasping or clinging, still the presence of discontent, And he recognized that even in that elevated state of concentration or elevated state of consciousness, there was a clinging to that state of mind. And so what he decided to do was something extraordinarily simple. After many years of training, lifetimes, according to the Buddhist teachings, of training, developing certain qualities, what he decided to do was something extremely simple, 
so simple that I'm not sure that many people actually had thought of it, which is to sit down and look. You know, sit down and just simply pay attention to his experience. And the intention in sitting down to look was to learn. And so what did the Buddha discover when he paid attention? When he opened his heart, opened his mind, and just simply sat with himself, took a look at himself. Well, he had a series of insights, interrelated insights. The first insight you know, many of us can certainly touch this, especially in the first couple of days of a retreat, the insight uh, that there's suffering. First noble truth, that there's this recognition, acknowledgement, clear seeing of the, of the presence of suffering in one's mind. Second noble truth was, as you begin to investigate that truth, what revealed itself was an understanding of what the origination of that suffering is? What causes that suffering? What's the source of that suffering? Understood that. And the third noble truth is Buddha came to an understanding of what liberation, liberation from suffering was. He didn't stop at just acknowledging and knowing suffering, but he understood it better. He investigated it, understood its cause, and then also understood liberation experienced in a very direct, unmistakable, unshakable way what liberation was. And finally, you know, I think his genius came to the forefront also where he also discovered the path and understood it, I think, in an extremely clear, clear way. So he understood suffering, understood the cause, He also understood and realized liberation, and he also saw very clearly the path. Now, that's one heck of a sitting, uh, needless to say. Uh, Pretty good. So the key in this particular practice that we're doing, insight meditation, and it's very much in the spirit of the Buddha's teachings, is not to take him for his word. Not to take this as the four truths in that sense. But rather a framework perhaps, something to investigate along with the Buddha. Begin to take a look if um, these four truths can be understood. Is this where the path of awareness goes? Are these the kind of discoveries that we can make? Can we understand suffering in a profoundly different way? a way where we see very clearly for ourselves what the source of that is. And in understanding the source, there's also the letting go and the liberation. And in the liberation, there's also a very clear seeing of the path. Is that possible for all of us? But what the Buddha said was, yes, he encouraged investigation. He didn't want folks to take his word for it. But what he did make a point of is you've got to try it. You can't just think about it. 
have to taste it. You have to put, it, put the teachings to, into practice and then see for yourself if they're useful or not. And if they're not particularly useful, then you can drop it. You can let it go. It's not for you. Nothing wrong with that. But to test the truth, to test if this is true for us, we have to walk the path for a while. You know, we have to persevere. So taking up the first noble truth, that is the recognition of suffering. Probably out by two days, it feels like I'm preaching to the choir. Uh, Don't think I have to drum up, convince anybody. Uh, There's at least some form of discontent in the mind, uh, some sense of unsatisfactoriness, kind of an awareness of um, the struggle Struggle. The thing that sometimes surprises me, and I think it's because I forget, um, is that a lot of folks come to retreat and they're really surprised at what they discover about their minds. That, that it's, it's so easy to have a certain expectation or a certain idea of, of what it's going to be like. And then when one sits down, one begins to see the state of things. And for many people, it's surprising. And also for many of us, it can be quite overwhelming, uh, and discouraging, kind of disappointing. And also it can trigger a lot of doubt. And of course, those are very common states of mind, uh, especially early on in the retreat, but also early on in the path. And I think that these particular states of mind uh, lose their power as practice matures, as we develop more confidence as we begin to uh, hang out with ourselves and, and develop a, uh, more equanimity in our, in our minds, equanimity in our practice, uh, we can still encounter a lot of these energies, but yet we hold them in a very different way. But for many of us, one of the surprising things is we actually think we can kind of, that we're doing at least a fairly decent job at managing and controlling our minds kind of a little bit in charge anyways. And then when we sit down in this kind of space of silence, being left to ourselves, one of the most profound insights, actually, that one can have is to begin to see that the mind is pretty much completely out of control. Uh, You sit down, and actually the instructions couldn't be much simpler, actually, is just sit down and feel your breathing. Sit down and feel your body. Really, that's really a simple task. Uh, unbelievably difficult, though. Really, I mean, you know, as simple as it is, uh, the mind just will not do that. It wants to go, and it does, whether it wants to or not. Goes to a lot of other worlds uh, besides being aware of this breathing process. Um, some of the places it goes, and, and the discoveries that we make, and. In, in beginning to develop insight, 
you know, in, in, in looking at ourselves and in, 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 in exploring and in investigating is, uh, you know, the, the states of mind that the Buddha talked about 2,600 years ago, 2,500 years ago, are still happening in the here and now. And that's amazing about the teachings is that so often um, the descriptions of the different states of mind and the descriptions of the challenges and obstacles that people faced so long ago in such a different world, in such a different culture, and yet, you know, there's just so much commonality of experience. Uh, but some of the most common experiences that you might have encountered is sleepiness, heaviness, that kind of dullness and weight in the mind, uh, restlessness, agitation, and boredom comes with the territory all the kind of endless arguments you have with yourself, all the dialogues, the speeches that you make, uh, the Dharma talks that you give. (laughs) And then getting racked with self-doubt because everything seems to be kind of falling apart. You're sitting, you're uncomfortable, you're restless, sleepy, doubting, fantasizing, and worried at the same time. Uh, and doubt kicks in, you know, a lot of doubt. The planning mind, the mind that fantasizes, uh, the mind that clings to anything, anything. Lunch tomorrow, starts. we start clinging at 1 o'clock the day before. Uh, you know, uh, anxiety about tea, tea whether there's going to be enough, and, so far, there's been soup, so that's kind of nice. Pain in the body. Let's take a look at hands. Has anyone not experienced any pain in the body? None. No hands and nobody has experienced none. So that's a common experience. <laughs> Let's say. Very common to encounter that. How about judging, hating our experience, loving those few moments of quiet and peacefulness, or comparing, comparing oneself to one's neighbor, comparing one's own practice now compared to what it was six months ago or a year ago, changing emotions, clinging to moments of concentration, not liking moments of agitation or restlessness. There are very few practitioners that that I know of anyways uh, that haven't encountered all of these states at one time or another. So if you want to personalize those states of mind, if you want to identify and claim them as you, you can. But that really is not how it is. The fact is, all of us, as we begin to take a look at our minds, all of us begin to encounter suffering. You know, a lot of discontent in the mind. And the suffering comes not so much out of the particular mind states and the difficulties and the physical pain that we're talking about in terms of what we encounter. But the suffering comes out of how we're relating to those experiences. 
And that's, that's a deep, deep insight to begin to discover. Not an easy one. Because when we're sitting there, we're yelling at our minds or telling ourselves things or giving ourselves pep talks or criticizing ourselves, criticizing others. You know, we're constantly looking at the conditions. And we miss the obvious, which is to simply take a look at how we're relating to those conditions. Is there a way of relating to them in a different way? That's where attitude is so important. Because if we want to learn, the conditions in our minds aren't something that we can just turn off or turn on. It's out of our control, and it's true when it comes to the conditions that we encounter in our daily life. But we do have some say, in fact, a lot more say than we think we do in terms of how we relate to that, in terms of how much we suffer and how much we don't. That is in our control. That is within our own power. That is something that we can train ourselves to do, which is to relate to the situation that we find ourselves in, no matter how awful it may be, to relate to it in a fundamentally different way. To relate to it so that we can learn, so that we can understand how we create suffering for ourselves. How we create suffering for ourselves. The practice is extremely humbling. One has to let go of one's pride. Even though it goes away very, very slowly. It gets worn out very, very slowly. But so often what we're confronted with is our limitations. The places that we get stuck. The places that we're grasping onto or clinging onto out of desperation, out of fear, out of desire, out of anxiety. So the Buddha didn't stop at simply recognizing and acknowledging the truth of suffering, the state of things. Although certainly he needed to, just like all of us. It's, the reason it's called the first noble truth is because it's the first. It's when we sit down, we don't necessarily understand clearly what the third is all about, or even the second. But we can begin to see can begin to taste and understand very quickly um, that suffering is going on, that, that, that it's present. So the training that we're undergoing, and this is clearly a training. Someone described it in the group this morning, your students as kind of boot camp. Um, I don't like to see it quite that way. Um, it doesn't feel harsh. I associate boot camp with kind of a lot of harsh judging and screaming and all that kind of stuff. And hopefully it doesn't feel like we're screaming at you from up here. You might be screaming at yourself, um, but we don't want you to do that. But what we are training ourselves to do is to begin to relate to ourselves in a fundamentally different way. Fundamentally different way. First of all, we want to cultivate a friendlier attitude towards ourselves. Very, very important. Crucial. 
path is so difficult. It's difficult enough as it is if we have an attitude of, you know, judging, fixing ourselves, not liking ourselves, criticizing ourselves. It's not to say that that doesn't arise in practice. It does. But we don't want to cultivate that attitude towards ourselves or towards our experience. So we want to begin to cultivate a friendlier, a more compassionate attitude. And sometimes the analogy that I use is when uh, someone talks about how they're relating to their own suffering in an interview. And I can hear sometimes a lot of judgment about it and a lot of self-criticism in, in the description of it, a lot of identification with it. And I'll say to them sometimes, well, you know, if, if I was a close friend of yours and I came to you with that story, how would you receive that? You know, would you criticize me? Would you judge me? Would you not listen? No. Nobody ever says yes. Uh, so I'm not sure they're being honest, but they, nobody says yes. <laughs> the fact is, that's not what a friend is about. And you really have to become a friend to yourself. One of the biggest favors in your life that you can do for yourself is to become a friend, to care about yourself, to try to cultivate a more loving relationship to yourself. It's not that easy. It doesn't happen overnight. But that's the kind of attitude that we want to approach this investigative process. Because when we meet the first noble truth, that attitude is very, very helpful. Very, very helpful. Because otherwise, if we don't try, at least, to cultivate and shift our attitude, the suffering we encounter, we just add to it. We reinforce it. We identify with it. We claim that suffering, and hence we put value judgments on ourselves and on the experience itself. We close down around the experience itself. So a friendly attitude is crucial. And as we develop this attitude of being more friendly and cultivating the qualities of samadhi, an ability to sustain the attention over uh, several moments, you know, over in a more sustained way, Concentration in itself doesn't lead to liberation, but concentration helps us with the investigative process. It helps allow the mindfulness to be steadier so that we can begin to uh, stay with a particular experience and keep the light of awareness on that, on, on that experience so that we can begin to investigate it and disentangle it so that we can begin to go below the surface, the apparent agitation and surface of that suffering to begin to understand what the source of that suffering is, what's fueling that contracted energy, what's fueling the discontent. So coupled with an attitude of friendliness and compassion and a steady light of mindfulness and calm, we begin to actually understand the nature of our suffering. We're not just overwhelmed by it anymore. We're actually able to explore it and discover things within our suffering. We begin to disentangle it. We begin to see it and understand the texture of it. We can begin to see how we create it. And we create it in a very conditioned way. We create it because we've learned how to create it. It's not something that we've just come up with on our own. But 
the conditioning in society and culture and families doesn't help us understand the nature of suffering because it's a very limited view. And the view, the very common view or understanding that all of us are learn one way or the other um, is that conditions are the cause of our suffering, for one. Something outside of ourselves is the cause of suffering for ourselves. And so we need to have a particular set of conditions in order to feel complete, in order to feel relaxation. And so we develop all sorts of agendas to create those conditions. In our retreat, common agendas is you really have to have samadhi. You can't get anywhere unless you have really strong samadhi. That's not true. Samadhi is useful. But we can see when we adopt that agenda how much pressure that puts on us. We're creating our suffering. But we've learned that. You know, we read a book. Sounds great. I want it. Let's get it. I'll even come to a retreat and subject myself to this to get it. Okay? A lot of pressure, a lot of expectations. But as we cultivate mindfulness, which is open-hearted attention, right? there's the key. It's not just attitude, but we need the capacity to do it. It's nice, it's useful and good to cultivate that attitude. One, one can cultivate that attitude of friendliness and acceptance early in one's practice. One does not have to wait 10 or 15 or 20 years to cultivate that attitude. The attitude develops and grows with practice. But one can remind oneself of that particular attitude and how important it is. And to keep reminding when one gets caught up in that judging and self-criticism and comparing and evaluating, wait a second, Wait a second, can I be more allowing? As Narayan said, can I make room for this particular experience? But mindfulness allows us to begin to do that, to actually put it into practice, to actually meet the suffering or meet the experience in the here and now, whatever it is, joy, happiness, sadness, grief, loss, anger, whatever the experience might be. Mindfulness allows us to meet it without one ounce of judgment. Because mindfulness is not judgmental. That's not its nature. Our thinking mind is judgmental, but not mindfulness. Mindfulness just meets experience and knows it. One description of mindfulness is loving attention. Non-judging attention. That form of intelligence is within all of us. It's an innate capacity that we all have. And as we strengthen mindfulness, which is so much of what what the retreat is about, developing that continuity of attention over and over again, wherever you are, every time you come back, that you're strengthening mindfulness, whether we're aware of it or not. Mindfulness is getting stronger. It's developing. It's growing. And soon it will become a resource that one can rely on, that one remembers to do more quickly. One doesn't have to go six or eight or ten hours without remembering just one moment of mindfulness. Maybe at the beginning it seems that way, but with practice it gets stronger. So we can see how important it is for mindfulness, that open-hearted attention, um, 
to uh, show the way to, to help implement this investigative process uh, so that we can begin to hold our suffering with loving attention. And that's the key. To hold it with loving attention and in that process of holding, we begin to understand. We begin to understand the nature of suffering. And we begin to develop something that grows with practice. And in some ways, this is one of the qualities that People who have more experience in practice tend to cultivate. In, in some ways, it's, it, it really distinguishes folks who have been practicing uh, longer than others. Is One begins to develop greater equanimity in the face of these different states of mind, in the face of one's suffering. One actually begins to develop an inner balance because as we pay attention in a more sustained way, we're also getting insight into the fact that these states of mind come and go. They come and go, they come and go, they come and go, they come and go. And so there's no need to get overly upset that we have some thoughts of self-doubt or we have some judgments about our neighbor or we have some desire for lunch or we're not fulfilling our aspirations on the sec- by the second day of a retreat. One develops relaxation, equanimity. Oh, yeah. You know, desire, anger, frustration, you know, states of mind, they come and go. I can hold those states of mind. I've seen them before. I can take a look at them now. And one begins to develop a confidence that sometimes for someone who's new, one lacks. So one learns to develop more equanimity. One begins to relax and develop this inner strength that allows us to hold our suffering and to begin to understand it, to understand its cause. And what the Buddha discovered, which I think is ingenious, um, brilliant, profound, what the Buddha discovered was um, that the cause of our suffering is not seen clearly, not understanding. And it's not understanding the nature of suffering and the nature of liberation. Simple. Really simple. That's what the Buddha discovered. In not seeing what leads to freedom, not understanding the nature of suffering, that the Buddha described as ignorance, delusion, ignorance, that causes a lot of trouble for us because we keep striving and holding on and grasping and clinging on to things in hope that it will bring lasting happiness or peace. Because somebody told us that it would. We learned it along the way. It's hard to avoid it. It's everywhere. Ads, newspapers, school systems. Just think. Just think if... Growing up in elementary school, that's the place I think about it first, or God, even high school, or junior high. Um, can you imagine if one was actually given some encouragement, some guidance, some support in terms of just simply being mindful? Can you imagine someone saying, okay, just be with your experience. 
Pay attention. See what you can learn from this moment of being really upset. You know? Can we just be mindful of that experience? Well, of course not. It doesn't come. It doesn't come because most people are interested in other things. Underneath it all, I think we're searching for the same thing, which is liberation from suffering. But how, how that comes about is something we have to discover for ourselves. Not seeing clearly, holding on, grasping on to refuges that are not particularly reliable, pleasure, trying to avoid pain, trying to escape our suffering instead of understanding it, judging ourselves instead of just opening our hearts to ourselves. And so in understanding and seeing crystal clear what the nature of our suffering is and what's causing it, we're walking this path of awareness, this path of light, shining the light on our lives. Well, what we begin to discover is what what our potential is. What our potential as human beings is. We begin to see innate qualities of mind and heart that are below the surface of suffering, that suffering obscures, that ignorance and not seeing clearly obscures. Enlightenment is not a place that one gets to. Enlightenment is not a place or a thing or a becoming enlightened or any of that. It's a transformation. It's a process of awakening. And what we're awakening to is the unconditioned within us. A reliable refuge, some place where some innate awareness that's within all of us, that's obscured. The Buddha described it as the uncreated, the deathless, the unborn, That which is always there. It's not a thing, but it's always there anyway. It's the relaxation of the mind on a very profound level. When the mind lets go of its agendas, completely lets go of ideas about how things should be or shouldn't be, And it's just simply resting in the now. No judging, no comparing, no evaluating. And when we begin to discover this unconditioned freedom, liberation, it helps begin to provide a context for which we hold our lives. We begin to understand as conditions arise that we learn to respond to them. We respond to them with clarity, with an understanding that those conditions are changing. When pleasure arises, we enjoy it. Nothing wrong with enjoying pleasure. The path is not about deprivation. Enjoy it. The more present, the more relaxed, the more open-hearted you are, the more joy there is in one's life, and one is even open to more pleasure. 
one can experience pleasure more fully. But one is also living from a place of understanding that pleasure is impermanent. And so one can be enjoying it without any of the grasping at all. One can be on a relaxed, easygoing vacation and not be clinging to it every day, but enjoying the day, enjoying the moment, enjoying the sun, the fresh air, nature, wherever you might find yourself. One also understands that when one confronts pain, whether one has experienced the unconditioned or understands liberation, understands that process better, One still encounters pain. One still encounters pain. But one understands that pain is part of life. And so we don't have to develop strategies to avoid it. In fact, we develop the capacity to hold it and relate to it with wisdom and with compassion. Instead of fear. Instead of fear. Think about that, to, to live a life where we don't fear pain. Take it as part of life. Try to respond in a skillful way when we encounter pain. Practical ways, sometimes that means when you're sitting on retreat, means sometimes sitting in a chair, and giving yourself a bit of a rest. If you're sitting in agony and gritting your teeth every sitting, and you can't get to your breath because you're in so much pain, that's a good time to apply a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of compassion. Try a chair. Try a bench. Go, go upstream on that one. You know? Try something different, something new. Um, if you move every second uh, just because you think you're going to be in discomfort, you want to head it off, if that's your tendency, try to sit with it a little bit. Don't move so much. Try to sit still just to see what that experience is like. Not to prove anything. Not to prove your worth or value yourself, but just to learn, to see what it's like to to be with pain and to see if you can open to it with attention, with love, with compassion. Whoop. I, I always get to just the three. But fortunately, I have a very concise fourth. (laughs) About two sentences. (laughs) The first sentence is, the path, the fourth noble truth, is what we're doing here. (laughs) That usually uplifts people. (laughs) Well, hopefully it's what we're doing here, but also what you're doing in your daily life. And very briefly... Buddha discovered the path to liberation, which um, I'm eternally grateful to. Doubt I would have found it on my own, to say the least. Um, and there's three different aspects of it. Certainly one is uh, something we discussed at the very beginning of the retreat. Um, sort of living li- one's life, understanding what one's actions have consequences, but living, living one's life in harmony respecting the beings that we encounter in this, on this planet. It's very difficult to taste peace or for the mind and body to relax 
when we're engaged in harmful actions. And again, the teachings are so obvious sometimes. Uh, but So there's an ethical aspect to um, the path for sure, fundamental actually. Uh, there's also the training, which is again another fundamental aspect. Uh, it's nice to read books, it's nice to have spiritual I- ideals and value, and really it's, it's crucial. But at the same time, we need to practice. You know, we need to train this unruly mind of ours, this mind that in some ways is our worst enemy. Uh, and so there's a practice of training, and that training has different aspects to it, but certainly wise and gentle effort in practice, perseverance, gentle perseverance, just invaluable. The Buddha talked a lot about effort because it's so important. But the quality of effort is key. It needs to have that attitude. It needs to be gentle and friendly. But there also needs to be a willingness to keep going and not to get stopped or undermined by some of the obstacles or challenges we face. Nothing worthwhile is gained unless we persevere. That's true in this practice for sure. It's true in our life in general. So gentle perseverance, samadhi and mindfulness are other aspects of the training. Then finally, there's the third aspect is wisdom, which I'm sure we'll be talking more and more about as the retreat goes on. Um, wise view, seeing things clearly, understanding impermanence, nature of suffering and freedom, and also wise intention, which is really a commitment to what we're doing. Commitment to awareness. Over and over again. Every time you come back, to me that's wise intention. So it's a wise choice to come back, no matter what is going on in the show. It's good to come back. Over and over again. And making that choice is the wisest thing we can do right now. Insight, discoveries, come out of coming back and opening one's heart to exactly what is happening in the here and now. That's where insight occurs. In the here and now, under any situation you find yourself in. And there are many, many stories in the Buddhist tradition about people awakening, having profound insights under all sorts of conditions. Arduous, difficult, painful conditions. Ordinary conditions, chopping vegetables, sweeping floors, sitting, walking, going to bed at night. That's my favorite. (laughs) Love that moment. Very mindful when I do that, actually. I want to enjoy it. So, keep going. It's good work. Thank you. Let's just sit for a minute.
Thank you for your attention and patience. Useful. Um, one announcement is to chanting sheets are in, on the um, table in front of the bulletin board, so if you want to bring one in, there'll be a little bit of chanting at the end of the night. Pick one up. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.